Hello and welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Brooke Patterson. I'm a physiotherapist and researcher at La Trobe Uni in Australia, and I will be your host today. In recent years, the need for safeguarding of young people in sport has become a major focus in the sport and exercise medical community. The BJSM has published numerous review papers, IOC consensus statements and editorials outlining the need to stop harmful abuse, discrimination, bullying and harassment in children's sport. The ISO has concluded that multi-pronged comprehensive strategies are needed to stop these types of behaviours. However, as a part of these strategies, we've seen a consistent recommendation to educate young athletes about the harm that can be caused by behaviours such as homophobic or sexist banter. This recommendation seems logical and common sense, but you may be surprised to hear it had never been tested until now. The BJSM recently published the first randomised controlled trial of an educational intervention designed to stop these types of harmful behaviours in youth sport. The trial tested the effectiveness of an education program delivered by professional rugby players, which was designed to stop homophobic language. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by the lead author, Eric Dennison, who is a research fellow at the Behaviour Works Institute and the Faculty of Education at Monash University. I'm also joined by Neil Hay, who is the president of Rugby Victoria, which is the governing body that oversees the rugby union clubs where the trial was conducted. He co-authored a companion editorial that focuses heavily on the need to stamp out harmful behaviours which is titled, We Need to Administer and Deliver Sport. We urgently need help from the sports medicine and research community. Welcome, Eric and Neil. Eric, can you start off by telling us a little bit about your research, the why and what you did and and what you found? Um, So our research was focused on stopping really harmful behaviours, which are very common in sport, and that's the homophobic language that boys and young men use on a regular basis. And so um, the go-to for this kind of behavior, including sexist language and racist language around the world is education programs. And that's often recommended as we'll develop an education program, just tell athletes that this behavior is wrong and surely they'll change their behavior. And it makes sense because training is fundamental to sport, right? You want people to adopt new ball throwing behaviors, you train them to adopt new ball throwing behaviors. Um, But no one had ever done any research to determine if education does change these harmful behaviors. Um, So that was our study. It was focused, it was the first RCT um, to test an education program delivered to young people with the focus on getting them to stop discriminatory behaviors, in our case, homophobic language. Um, We took it a step further. So we used professional athletes to deliver the education. And in some ways, the the intervention was completely unrealistic and unsustainable because having high-profile professional athletes travel around the state and go into clubs and talk to kids for 30 minutes is completely unrealistic. However, what we wanted to do is almost test the platinum standard because if the platinum standard doesn't work, then surely everything else we can be fairly confident uh, in saying that doesn't work on its own. Um, So having these professional athletes, including the captain of the Melbourne Rebels, go into clubs physically and talk to kids for 30 minutes about their harmful language that they're using, about homophobic language, increasing the rates of self-harm and suicide of gay kids, the fact gay kids play sport at about half the rate of straight kids. You know, they provided all that information. 
And it was interesting because their perception was the boys in the room agreed with them. And our surveys suggest that as well, that a lot of these kids have close gay friends. There's, you know, low levels of measurable homophobia. Um, they believe this language is wrong to use. Um, they want this language to stop, but then they don't stop the language. So after the rebels intervention was delivered, this education program, the rates of language self-report actually increased, didn't decrease in both conditions, both the treatment and the, the control condition. Um, now, did it really increase? No, because um, this is normative behavior. So what happened was the surveys and the control condition and the, um, the intervention itself just made the kids notice the behavior around them that they were already using. So, um, so about 60% of the young men were using homophobic slurs, like really harmful slurs in the past two weeks. Um, and over 70% said their teammates were using this language. And I guess what was really concerning to us was that um, there was, there was, the coaches were not challenging this behavior, were not enforcing the rules. And even more problematically, kids on every team said that their coaches had been using this language. Um, so, you know, do we believe coaches are bad human beings and they're intentionally undermining this intervention? Absolutely not. This language is so normalized in sport. I don't think they even noticed this language is coming out of their mouth. It was just, you know, calling each other homophobic slurs and sexist slurs is just so common in sport. It's almost like wallpaper. Do you notice the wallpaper on the wall? No, it's just there. So, um, so that's the challenge is getting these, these um, coaches in particular to notice their behavior, understand how harmful it is and accept it, and then do something about that. Um, and that's where we need that something in terms of a regulatory force to come in and make them do it because they're not going to do it on their own. Thank you, Eric. That's an absolutely great summary of the, the study. Um, I guess this might have been quite disappointing for you. And how did you react to the results? So this is my PhD project. I left a, a career as senior career <laughs> in strategic communications. And I thought, you know, I didn't believe my supervisors when they said this intervention is not going to work. I was convinced that this intervention would work. And so when I saw the data, I was gutted. Um, particularly because these kids that they, the professional athletes were talking to, you know, they had positive attitudes. They did say that the education helped them become more aware of the behavior. Um, and so it was just really gutting. You know, it's like every, every person who's been through a PhD where the outcome of their research is a null result, it's devastating. However, in terms of what's going next, we were able to work on a, a couple of projects on the side of the PhD, almost like plan B and C projects. And those were testing interventions, which I thought would not work. And those were these rainbow themed LGBTQ pride games in community sport. And so um, we ended up conducting two separate studies, which had the exact same result in seven different sports, which was Teams that host these games in, in community sport use about 50% less homophobic language, and they also use less, less sexist language. And now this hasn't been, uh, we haven't done an RCT, um, but there's no other factor that can explain the difference. There's not more or less homophobes in one place or another, more or less religious people. Um, so it seems, you know, pretty solid given it was replicated. Um, and we think it's just because it disrupts the norms putting rainbows on, playing in a rainbow jumper, um, you know, talking about these issues. The, the best way of describing it was some players who are in a, playing in a pride game. 
um, they used a homophobic slur. And they said it was like swearing in front of their grandmother. They didn't even oh. know this language was coming out of their mouth. They said it and they said they've still used it since, but now they actually notice the language and they try and call themselves out and you know, control their behavior and call others out as well. So we think that's the process that's going on here. It's just sort of getting, it's that system one, system two idea of thinking, automatic behavior versus conscious behavior. A lot of this language is just so automatic in sport that you know, I bet people listening to this are thinking, wait a second, I've never heard homophobic or sexist language in sport. That's because you don't believe it's homophobic and sexist. You're not using it for that reason. So that's why you don't hear it as that. But um, I reckon you probably, after hearing this podcast, people will start hearing the language around them. I can just add something on that. Um, there's, a, there's a virtuousness about Pride rounds that you feel gets contagious within those clubs. And the players themselves, Eric mentioned about putting the rainbow on and wearing the rainbow socks. It's, it's a really good feeling in those clubs when they do it. And if it's contagious, that's a good disease to catch. And if you manage to get two or three people who then convert within those clubs, it's doing the job that the professional athletes you had hoped was going to do because they felt virtuous, they felt good about it, they felt like they were swearing in front of their granny. Now they don't feel so bad about actually saying, hey, guys, don't use that language. So they become the champions without you actually having to pick a champion. Although we have in those days because we've got the captains, we've got the coaches, everybody's coming in on that. But you do feel this. I mean, I was at the last two, you know, with unicorns and um, university in Melbourne, and you felt there was the players actually took a pride in having a pride round, and that was something that I wasn't expecting to come out of it. And that was the other intervention approach that we found was getting the captains involved, right? So nothing changes at a club until the captains decide that on a team until the captains decide to change it. The issue that we're still having, though, is the coaches. So, you know, we know the pride games seem to have an impact. We know engaging with captains has an impact. The next piece of the puzzle, which I know everyone around the world is trying to solve right now, which is really hard, is how do we change the behavior of coaches? Um, and we don't have the answer for that yet. But we think getting local councils involved as sort of coming down with that carrot stick approach, that might be the best way. And Eric, do you think they um uh, almost like a pride round plus maybe some of your education piece that you know so then there was multiple touch points could potentially work? Uh, we think you know pride games, respect women and girls games, combined with coaches actually doing their job, which is to keep kids safe, um, which is to stop harmful behavior. I mean that's the piece we're not sure how to do, um, but then also that education piece, you know, getting the captains involved to deliver the education. Um, having outsiders come in, I mean, that's been proven in, in non-sport environments to have no impact on behavior. So it's probably going to have to be a peer-led thing. But having professional athletes support these initiatives would give people the social validity, the, the confidence to support them themselves. So we think that's their role going forward. Less around getting the athletes to deliver the education, more around the athletes to support what's going on in the community. That's probably where their, their power lies. Because there's still influences with those kids. Mm. They're still the heroes. And there must be some benefit in using the heroes to reinforce what we're doing.
That's a really good point. And I really like your point, Neil, about um, almost normalising the champion or the speaking up aspect of, of those jumpers or whatever it might be. And, you know, I think, Eric, whilst it was gutting for you, you clearly, I think, you know, probably have made a difference with that increased awareness. And whilst, you know, the data might not support the actual language, it's just it's one step in in the process. So, um, yeah, really congratulate you on, on that piece of work. So, Eric and Neil, this is a question for you both. Clearly, behaviour change is hard uh, no matter what intervention we're trying to do in community sports clubs. We see a lot of similarities in, you know, trying to implement injury prevention programs. So I just want to delve a little bit deeper in terms of what you think um, some of the solutions might be and what's actually going to motivate uh, community clubs. The clubs will have a different pressure from the coaches and the coaches and the players will have a different pressure. Then Rugby Victoria will have a pressure. We, we're getting it from government. We're getting it from our ultimate body, the Rugby Australia. And unless somebody actually says, right, you've got to focus on this, it won't happen. And it doesn't matter what we dictate and we feel is right. It comes down from the fact that the clubs all have different pressures. If one club has a safety and it works well, a much better safety record than the others. And they're, especially in the children's sphere, and they're talking to all their coaches and they're talking as a club, that's where we can find direct intervention and then other clubs want to copy. I think, you know, the solution for me, whether we say this, is, is we identify certain influential clubs to make real change across the whole thing because the parents want their kids to go there if we succeed with those clubs and other clubs will have to co copy or wither. It's interesting though because when we look at the data the governing bodies or associations they like Neil just said they have no influence or ability to influence coaches at the community level or the school level so that's why when we did a map and looked at well who does influence coaches who can get them to change their behaviors that's where it really comes down to the local councils because, you know, an illustration of this would be um, the coach maybe loses his key or her key to the facilities where they have to go. They have to call local council. If local council doesn't like them or um, they're not doing things that local council thinks are right, they're going to make it really difficult to get that replacement key. And so that just shows the power that local councils have because they own the facilities and um, they're their main stakeholder in many ways. And, and, you know, I hate to say it, but there's almost like a fear of local council that I think is the is what's needed here to drive change to behaviours. I agree. I think I hadn't thought of it like that. I think local councils are, I always thought that they were instrumental and part of it, but they are key. And, and ours is about sort of driving. It's not just saying you must have a, uh, a medically trained person at the match because we've not got anybody there reinforcing that. We don't even know if they're actually, they, they just tell us they've done it. We don't know. We're not at every match. We can't be. Whereas we all know local councils are very good at regulation. <laughs> That's their expertise, right? So if you give this to them, um, the problem is that you don't want them to go overboard, right? You want them to support sport, not crack down on sport. Yeah. Um, so that's the concern we have. So there we have to be a bit of a, a balance there. But I, you know, right now there's really unsafe, harmful behaviors going on at these public facilities that are owned by local councils. So in essence, they have a legal responsibility and a moral one to crack down. And 
they are the only ones who really do have that legal and moral responsibility right now, other than because the governing bodies don't actually own the clubs, right? It's, um, so that's where, you know, if we want to drive the most change, that seems to be where we're focused on most here in terms of safeguarding. And so for, I guess, anyone trying to change behaviour within a community sports club, do you think it's more about an incentive as opposed to the stick approach? And what kind of incentives do you think would motivate clubs and camp, local council? It would be interesting to hear Neil's view, but I, what we find in our research, so researchers who are trying to get access to sport clubs, we've got access to a lot of sport clubs, hundreds of sport clubs. And initially what we tried was offering them money, like have a grocery store certificate, that kind of thing. And they were kind of interested in that. What they're really interested in was us writing them a letter saying how wonderful they were for participating in our research that then they could share with their local council um, and include in the grant applications because a lot of the funding comes from their local councils or local government. And so they would use these letters to prove that they are taking steps to improve the safeguarding of, of children and, and make their club more inclusive. So that seems to be the best way to drive access for us as researchers into these clubs and get access. So if, if that works for that, it would certainly work for you. If you want funding, you need to prove that you are introducing safeguarding frameworks. You need to show us that. And we're going to come and audit you to make sure you actually are, but we're also going to come and support you to, to help you to do this. It's an interesting few things you put, put out there. We can help our clubs if we turn around and say we'd like you to partake in research the clubs will do it because they all want to have a good and a bad relationship with their governing body they want to be able to shout at us and tell us how bad we are but they also want us to be able to say we'll come down and say hello to you when your council's there we will support you because their relationship with the council is paramount they don't get the pitches if they don't have a relationship. So therefore, we still hold a stick with them because we're influential with the councils, even though we don't have the direct communication. They 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 want to be able to say, yes, we're supported by Rugby Victoria, we're supported by Rugby Australia, this is the framework, they help us. And I, I think one of the main areas that we get, either our development officers, CEO or myself, or board members is, can we come down and talk to their councils with them? Can we show our support? So that's an area we can really work with them. So in return, we say, come and join in the research because it's important and you'll win from it. And I think if we also get any pushback from the clubs, which I wouldn't expect or anticipate, it would be to go to the influential clubs because losing a few players to a club that is more... Um, not advanced, but but more accepting of change and progress is a real anathema to some of the clubs. And therefore, if we're supporting one club because they didn't come on and it's seen as a success and the parents like it, and I'm absolutely sure the parents will like it, then they will lose out. So all we have to do is to couch it in terms that you're going to miss out on growth because growth is everything to these clubs with their conversations with the councils, with their conversations with everybody. So I think there's a way we can do this, and I think it's very important that we have this research. It is a major thing. It's, it's something that we have to say. I'd love to be able to go back to RA and say, we're working with Latrobe, we're doing this research. And by the way, what research are you doing, RA? You know what's interesting is when you're saying that, um, 
there used to be pushback. So there used to be pushback a lot from clubs saying when we tell them, oh, if you're diverse and inclusive, then you're going to grow. And I think they questioned whether that was true or not until recently. But now they've seen with women's sport that if they don't have a women's team, they are dying as a club generally. And so I think what's really changed for the positive is we don't need to convince them that this is important anymore. But that's very different from them actually doing something about it that's not tokenistic. And so that's been the challenge that we have. And, and that's where we need to find those sort of regulatory levers or, and, you know, maybe it is the local councils working with the governing bodies where we won't give you what you need and want if you don't do this, but we'll also give you extra if you do this. We'll give you extra funding. We'll give you extra support for your women's program because they know, they know how important women's programs are now um, and women's and girls. And they didn't, used to view it very as that. Nice. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's very much, we threaten the stick, but the stick turns into a carrot. It's not the stick and the carrot. The stick actually turns into a carrot. Mm. That might be the title of the podcast, Neil. Um, I'm interested in your opinion, Neil, on the, I guess, the data to support. You're obviously very pro-research, but do you think that as a league or clubs, do they want to see that, you know, that intervention has worked to convince them to do it? Or, or yeah, what kind of? Um, feedback we get from our clubs with the juniors um, age groups, which is most of our clubs now, is the safety comes from not the tackling, not the, it's the size differences. And they're worried about, um, the boy who's 25, 30 kilos heavier than their little Johnny or Jill, and they they want to know what we're doing to make that secure. I'm not sure if I answered your question directly, but what that is the biggest feedback we get. And if we can show that we're doing research to try and make the pitch a safer place, whether it's directly or indirectly about size to weight ratios, whether it's directly and indirectly about boys and girls playing in the same teams up to a certain age. If we have the research to back it, we seem to be a progressive, and that's what we want to be, it's not just tokenism, we're a progressive governing body and that we are looking after their children, that we're doing the best we can. Now, we run the risk that the research comes back and says, you are going to have all these injuries. And then the insurer says, we're not going to insure or we're going to put your policy up because your research shows us. So we're willing to take that risk. And there will be a risk associated with it. But somebody sometime has to accept that research is going to give us the answers to a safe, inclusive sports field that can grow because we're doing the right things, not just grow because we're throwing money at it. Yeah, no, 100%. And I just want to circle back to a couple of things um, we were talking about before and that um, concept of champion clubs, I think, is, yeah, so much more powerful than, you know, a team of researchers going out to a club and saying, you know, this is what we're doing, why you should do it. If it's someone like them that can deliver that message, then it's it's really powerful. Um, and then also interested, Neil, in terms of the incentive, like uh, Eric was saying, you know, offering a certificate or indicating that they participated in the research. How do you see that beyond the research project? Because obviously we can't get funding and research projects for a particular thing forever. How do you see your role as the league to providing some of those tangible incentives? That's about reinforcement. And if I don't reinforce, then our staff don't reinforce. 
So we've got to remember that it's very important to not just do the research and leave it under the table, it's to do the research and then reinforce the research. There's no point in having findings that tell us A, B or C, or one, two and three, if we then go, we've been told that, and then do nothing with it but put it under the table. There are things that we're now, I think we're getting better at. Instead of communicating safety on match day safety and doing it once a year to the club president, we're making sure that it goes to all officials within the club and that we do it three times a year. I'm hoping that that's going to help make a difference because in the past, Rugby Victoria could be accused of doing what we had to do but doing no more. So we'd send it out and then say, we've done that job. Now it's up to the clubs. But the club said, oh, I went into my junk mail. You know, sorry, yeah. we didn't do anything. So we, we, if we don't reinforce, nothing will happen. And that is any research, whether it's yeah. from myself or Eric, from whoever. I think what that speaks to is, <clears throat> I mean, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee in the BGSM has consistently published consensus statements that say multifaceted, multi-component approaches are needed to solve these problems. And generally, instead, what we see is sport try to solve these problems with one-off or two-off approaches, and which runs completely counter from what the industry itself has accepted to be needed. And so that's the challenge. And I think what Neil is just saying there is around, you know, these clubs need to understand that one program alone isn't going to drive the change that's needed. They're going to have to come at it at multiple angles. And mm. the challenge is that there's a lot of volunteers running sport and they don't have a lot of time. So to tell them you have to implement a multi-component, multifaceted intervention strategy, their heads would explode. Um, so we need to find a way to support them to do this. And, and again, you know, that seems to be where it comes down to the local councils because they're living beside them, working beside them. They, you know, putting a resource on the national governing body's website is far removed from the local community where the, the sport and rec um, um, officer for that council or safe sport officer can go down and help the clubs to do it and support them over time to implement these things. But again, th these things have to be developed, right? When I say these things, right? And so, you know, we still don't know how to create safe sport environments. I mean, our study is a perfect example of that. Things that are widely used around the world, it doesn't work on its own, but that actually aligns with maybe it would work if there was policies that were enforced, um, appropriate policies, there was um, proper uh, monitoring and regulation, you know, financial centers, all of those other things. That's, that's the trick. I'm going to circle back to where we started the, the conversation around, yeah, you've already mentioned some of those next steps in terms of testing some different strategies. What, um, yeah, what's going to be your role with the, the league moving forward? Can you, can you have an active role? Do you have the resources to do that? Mana, so I'm really lucky because I'm at Monash University, which is a major medical university. Um, and so they view this as a major public health problem, right? We need to stop these very harmful behaviors in sport. Um, we also know now very strongly that kids who are using homophobic and sexist language in sport, that's a strong predictor of them engaging in gender-based violence later in life. And so all these big social problems are connected and they seem, many of them seem to point back to the behaviors that kids are learning in sport. So I'm lucky because my university is really strongly supportive of the research that we're doing and the research that um, I'm leading. 
Um, and so, but no one wants to pay for it. That's the challenge. Um, so thankfully, we've pivoted a bit. So we have the mining industry, which has all of the same problems as sport with sexual harassment, sexual assault, homophobic behaviors, sexist behaviors. Um, so we're doing research with them. Interestingly, applying a lot of the things we've learned in sport to the mining industry. Of course, they're paying the bills, which allows us to continue to do the sport research. Um, but so we're going to continue working with rugby. We find rugby to be a very good partner. Monash is invested approximately, you know, about a million dollars in kind into the sport over the past five years, plus funding from the Australian government. And so um, we just find rugby is a really um, open sport. I think it because it thinks it's inclusive, that sort of game for all, it actually then wants to be inclusive, where we haven't found that same kind of openness in other sports, um, where they seem much more risk adverse. And that's less about their identity of being inclusive. Mm, that's super interesting. All right, I think we've got heaps of content, but one thing I would like to get across, Eric, is um, for the like sports medicine exercise professionals that are listening in, what is their role in you know respect to um, you know homophobic slurs, maybe as an individual, or if they're working with a team, or you know even broader, if they're just trying to intervene with a community sports club, what's your advice to them? So I think there's three things that the, the sport and exercise medicine community needs to focus on right now. So number one, um, we need to stop making recommendations that aren't evidence-based. So you should not be recommending education programs, you know, creating manuals, those kinds of things, because there's no evidence supporting that. There's good evidence around using social norm interventions to drive change. So you should be looking down that pathway if you want to you know, look for recommendations, recommend using social norm interventions. Um, or the, the next piece is that we know that LGBTQ plus kids have alarming rates of suicide and self-harm. And one of the best things we have in our, in our toolbox in terms of improving mental and, and physical health is sport participation. So it's, there is an urgent need to create safe sport environments so these kids can start playing sport um, and get the benefits from playing sport. Um, but that's true for all kids. These environments are harmful to all kids. Um, and the third thing is just to be really aware of the extreme trauma that can be caused. There's a number of studies um, that have been published that have looked at the long-term impacts of, of homophobic abuse in PE classes and in sport environments. And the um, trauma, the memories of trauma can be very long-lasting. And so if you're caring for an athlete, um, and they're suffering from depression or if they're self-harming, explore that, whether they have been the target of bullying, whether they are challenged in terms of their sexuality, um, because um, that's probably not the go-to for most uh, doctors is to sort of ask, oh, I mean, you know, have you experienced bullying? You know, tell me about your experience in sport. Um, but um, that seems like a key driver of um, negative health outcomes for athletes. Um, you know, even talking to professional athletes, the stories of bullying that they experience in sport are quite horrific. Mm. And the, the physios and the doctors and the health professionals are often the ones spending you know, a lot of time with these athletes one-on-one. -on -one. So, yeah, they can they can be part of that, you know, championing and, you know, normalising the, the speaking up and being advocates for the players as well. And they have a professional responsibility to do it, an obligation. So they should not be. We were quite alarmed in our in another study where we were interviewing um, everyone involved in the club, and the number of physios that reported hearing homophobic and sexist language. And we're saying, hold on, 
you have a professional responsibility uh, to stop this behavior. So you shouldn't be listening to this behavior. You should be immediately taking action. Um, so, but it's scary because it's just so normative. How do they actually change the behavior? And, and you know, it'd be scary to, to try and challenge it, even if you are a respected physio in a club. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good reminder. And Neil, I know you've um, been part of a, an editorial piece in, you know, what, you know, sporting organisations need from the sports medicine community. Have you got any kind of, I guess, final takeaway messages for us? Uh, I, I suppose we're here to work with you. We see the benefit in everything that can come from sport, both mentally and physically. And if we're going to do it right, we've not got to be box tickers. We've got to work. And the only way we can do that is with help, help from the researchers, from the medical bodies, rather than just telling us to set up a diversity and inclusion policy, which then just gets put under the table. No, we need your help to really make change. I think that's an excellent way to finish. I've really enjoyed the the conversation and we'll um, definitely post lots of links to the papers um, and and resources as well. And, um, yeah, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast and we hope you have a physically active day.